Welcome to Coastal Roots Radio, a production of the University of Guelph and the Errol Food Institute. This is the premiere episode of Social Fish Tensing, our premiere coverage of the impact of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. So right now, we basically have a lot of products sitting in cold storage that we may not ever be able to sell with restaurants being shut down. What's going to be available? You know, is there going to be restaurants open? Is the is the markets going to be there? I think we are, we're okay. Obviously, it's not, not an ideal permanent situation for us. My name is Hannah Harrison, and today I'll be your co-host. I'm joined with... Emily D'Souza. And Philip Loring. And if you're new to Coastal Roots, we are a relatively new international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested and supported the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus on storytelling, but did not expect our debut podcasts to focus on a global pandemic. Right. We're adapting on the fly here, and more than anything else, that's the story that we're hoping to share with you over the next few weeks. Stories of how people are adapting to this crisis. Because if there's one thing that we know about fishermen and women, it's that they are adaptable. Exactly. So our goal with this podcast is to highlight the many stories that we are hearing as fishermen and women around Canada and the U.S. attempt to adapt, quite rapidly, to the new social and an economic landscape created by COVID-19. So this last week marked one month since I've started self-isolating. And when I went shopping recently, I noticed that one of the things I couldn't buy, other than toilet paper, was fresh fish. As someone who eats seafood regularly, this was a big deal to me. In the midst of a global pandemic, I was finding myself without access to my favorite source of protein. Yes, this pandemic has really shaken things up for food systems around the world. It's exposing some potentially important vulnerabilities in how we get our food. And for many people, this has been threatening, both for their food security and also for the livelihood security of the people who produce and harvest our food. You know, having grown up in a commercial fishing family myself, this really makes me wonder what's happening with all of the fishermen who normally sell to restaurants and processors, and what sort of challenges they're facing in the light of COVID-19. Well, to find out, we decided to call some. Thanks to the Local Catch Network, we were able to connect with a bunch of fishing folks this week. For example, I spoke with Jordan Kassinger, a fisherman from San Diego who sells her catch at Tuna Harbor Dockside Market. My name is Jordan Kasslinger, and I am a third-generation um, commercial fisherman. Both my grandfather was a commercial fisherman, and my dad still is a commercial fisherman. He's been fishing commercially for 40 years. So we fish out of San Diego, California. We do a variety of things. We do lobster, um, spiny lobster, rock crab. Today we did some gillnet, so we got some halibut. Um, we also do yellowtail and sea bass and all that good stuff. So I asked Jordan about what sorts of changes that she's seen since the emergence of COVID-19. So the hardest thing definitely has been in from the fishing aspect, trying to find places that will take fish because today we sold to um, Pacific Shellfish, which has the fishery restaurant in Pacific Beach. So it wasn't a problem for them because they have a fish counter and as well as um, wholesale. So they still are selling their part of their menu but instead of being able to just take everything to one place, we're having to kind of feel out who wants it and who needs it and who can pay for fish right now. Last week, we launched our online store for pickup. We didn't really know how it was going to go being the first week and what the interest would be. And within 15 minutes at when it went live last Thursday at five, I had 
47 orders. So the interest was definitely there. Um, We've also had a lot of interest already for this coming week. A lot of people continuing to ask and, and just wanting to, again, support, but don't want to be there. And so it's just another option for them. For the market aspect in terms of like direct consumption, I definitely the market before was we opened at eight o'clock and it was kind of a free for all, you know, you lined up and then once we opened at eight, you could walk to whoever, you know, and now we still open at eight, but instead we have people line up. The first 30 people come in, can grab their fish and instead of, you know, grab your fish, hang out all day, enjoy the sun. Now it's come in, buy your fish get it cut if you need to, and then leave so more people can come in. So we've seen about 30% new customers every weekend, um, whereas before it was pretty much we had regulars. We'd kind of get some of the foot traffic down there. And so we've seen at least 300 plus customers every Saturday for the last uh, three or four weeks. I think we've been still operating the way that we have. I think it was you who was saying on that first local catch webinar that you were having people um, like almost panic buying seafood and buying up large quantities. Yeah. Yeah. Is that still, uh, (laughs) is that still occurring or how'd you guys handle that? It definitely, I mean the first couple of weeks, yes, absolutely. People went from buying like a bag, two pound bag of fish or like five pounds of fish to buying two or three whole like 20 to 30 pound tunas. Um, and so the first couple of weeks we had to put a, a, a max on it because people at the end of the lines would wait in line forever. And then people would, were just buying us out of fish. So now, um, it's definitely calmed down and like backed off a little bit. And instead, because I man our line every Saturday. And so I'm standing there counting people and keeping track of who goes in and out. And I've seen return customers that were first timers three weeks ago that have come back every week and they just buy enough for the week and then they come back and then they bring their neighbors or they bring friends with them the next time so that they can also get stuff. Wow, Emily, that's really interesting and a really positive story, but I'm guessing that it's not all good news across the board. Right. So I also talked with Melissa Collier from West Coast Wild Scallops in British Columbia, who shared a little bit of a different story. Oh, it's changed everything. Um, So we fish in February. We already had our fishing season. We've stocked up based on what we thought we were going to sell this year. This time of year in March, everyone's changing over their spring menus, looking at their summer menus. This is when our sales start to ramp up and everything is granted to a complete halt. So we've gone out, we've fished, we've put all of the upfront money scalps in general as a really heavy uh, financial cost upfront because we pay for our fuel and our food and our boat. We also pay our deckhand wages. We have custom processing. We have third-party service providers for managing, monitoring our quota. Um, we have cold storage fees and shipping fees. So we pay all of that up right up front without ever selling anything. And then we hope to recuperate our costs throughout the year as we sell our product. So right now, we basically have a lot of product sitting in cold storage that we may not ever be able to sell with restaurants being shut down. To backtrack a little bit, we actually fish three different fisheries. We're involved in swimming scallops, we're involved in BC spot prawns, as well as all five species of salmon. Um, We've been fishing prawns and salmon for a while now, but uh, we picked up swimming scallops just a few years ago. 
um, just for the sake of diversifying. Um, fishermen really can't survive on just a single fishery, so it's always a good idea to diversify and think outside the box. Um, so we started fishing swimming scallops, but there really was no market for them, so we had to create a company in order to market and sell our own catch, which is how West Coast Wild Scallops came about. Um, Basically, how we ended up operating is we discovered through trial and error that um, direct marketing to restaurants and such, they would like to have a steady stream of product. So since we fish other fisheries, our window for, op for fishing opportunity for scallops is in the winter. And in order to supply a steady, reliable product, what we would do is we would fish based on what we think our projected sales are for the year. Um, our scallops have a really short shelf life, so they're always frozen within a day or two of being caught. And then we would just put them in cold storage. Um, so that way we could sell throughout the entire year uh, as restaurants want them and be able to have a steady supply feeding their menus. So our scallops are very different. They're small, they're unique. They look more like a mussel or a clam than they do a scallop, so it kind of throws people off when they see them. So they don't do that well in retail markets unless the retail markets are really good about educating about them because otherwise people look at them and they think, well, what the heck is that? So really we've had to get creative. We were just getting to a point where we've built this business over the last, it's been about three years, that I wasn't having to hit the pavement so hard and I wasn't having to be on the phone all the time and really just push, push, push to try to find people who are interested in our scallops, people who want to buy our scallops, carry our scallops. Um, just getting into a really nice groove where we had a steady, steady clientele. We were getting new people. We were kind of dropping off some people. Maybe they weren't be able to make it a go, but it was, it was a really good place to be in. And then this hit. So I'm having to hit the payment again. It's been a lot of phone calls, a lot of revising the way that we approach our sales looking a lot more into local products and local, sorry, local, um, local markets. But again, the challenge is still there of trying to get people to try something that's different. I, I, it's a lot of work. I'm working more now than I have in a long time. Um, so it's hard to maintain that work-life balance. Um, plus we're also getting ready for fishing season in case it does happen. So I'm feeling positive, but I'm definitely feel like I have a long road and a lot of work ahead of me. I also spoke this week with Tracy Sylvester. She and her partner, Jesse, live in Massachusetts, but they long line for salmon, halibut, and black cod out of Southeast Alaska in the summers. They just started a direct marketing business in February, and up until social distancing measures went into place, Tracy had been selling their frozen fish directly to consumers at farmer's markets. I think that we, as fishermen selling it ourselves, just have a really strong edge. It's um, there's really nothing that can compete with directly connecting with the fishermen who can tell you everything about it, how it was caught, nutrition. They're just so passionate about it. Um, we just started direct marketing this winter with the help of our co-op, the Seafood Producers Cooperative. We've been marketing fish that was caught by us and other members of our co-op. Uh, here on Cape Cod and in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, we did one local winter market at a garden center nearby, Mahoney's Garden Center in Falmouth, and 
it was great. It wasn't a particularly busy market, but it was pretty consistent. And um, so that was just an eight week market that ran late winter. And then we're signed up for the SOA market in Boston's South End. That's a pretty busy, well-known Boston outdoor market. They have food trucks and all kinds of artists and um, they have like a beer garden and everything. And so this would be our first time, you know, of course, since we started this winter, we are planning to be there whenever it opens. But of course, with coronavirus now, we don't know when we're going to be able to open the market. And also, I don't know if I feel comfortable working at the market when I could just be delivering to doorsteps. Even as someone new to direct marketing, Tracy is monitoring carefully how COVID-19 is affecting her sales. You know, basically what I'm starting to see as far as my sales staying steady is like the people who buy our hook and line top-notch salmon and halibut and black cod can afford it even now. Like they're just, especially now, happy to buy it from us because they can't go to a restaurant. And so for us, it might be like manageable because we have this increased demand. We have been a lot of us working to direct market. We have a lot of plans. We have a lot of irons in the fire that are starting to make more sense, but we are a community. We're a fishing community. I've all kinds of friends in different fisheries and we all depend on each other to drive Alaska's fisheries in a way that is profitable and keeps us all out there working. You know, Hannah, I recognize some of the places she's talking about having grown up in New England myself. It's a really good story, and I'm always impressed at how flexible and resilient fishers are. And this is a really interesting story to me about how they are working together with this cooperative model. And and it's another good story of ways that parts of our food system can be more resilient than they are right now. Another important story that we want to pay attention to over the weeks was brought up by Buck Jones from the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. He pointed out that many of these fisheries are not just about commercial sales, but also about food security, ceremony, and tradition. Each tribe has ceremonial catches that they um, bring back to their own reservations, to their uh, their longhouses, their churches uh, for uh, celebrations. Um, we... Uh, actually have like what's called a first salmon ceremony that is happening now. So before we do any commercial fishing, we have a a ceremony because salmon's been part of our people, you know, since time immemorial. It's so cultural relevant. But that being said, you know, we had to to adapt or either not have some of these ceremonies where less than 10 people and no handshakes and, you know, His perspective really helped me to think about what the long-term impacts of the pandemic could be because that's where his mind was. I think looking in the future when we do have uh, commercial seasons, um, Alaska's getting ready to start fisheries, the Copper River's getting ready to start. But our, our big our big fishery is, is the king salmon is in the fall time. So that's really what I mean kind of by the unknown, what's going to happen, you know, uh, what's going to be available, you know, is there going to be restaurants open? Is the, is the markets going to be there? I've been really keeping my eye out on other fisheries, how they've been impacted and how they've been adapted, uh, you know, from dock to, 
duck to people sales or home delivery, we may have to uh, do that kind of adaption. You know, um, us as indigenous people, um, we've been through a lot. We've been survivors. And I think that's something that uh, our culture uh, and our uh, and our religion and our songs and our history of, of being survivors um, will help us get through this. Well, I think that's a really great sentiment to end this on for today. So thanks for listening. Social Fishtenstein will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one each Tuesday. If you would like to find a local fisherman near you, visit the Local Catch website at www.localcatch.org. To connect with the people that you've heard on this podcast, including the fishermen, please visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. That's www.coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and also by the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph. You're listening to Raisin Hell by David Suzuki. Thanks, and see you next time.